Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. NamUs is the national database, the National System for Missing and Unidentified Persons, and it's, it's a database and an organization. It's not just a website. There's a whole group of people that do all types of forensic services. It's the national repository. That's you know really important that we have a national place to go. I realize now it might not still be enough, even state laws. You can't say build it and they'll come. They might not. This is Todd Matthews. He helped put together the original list of murdered and missing Grateful Dead fans. There was free services, dental DNA fingerprint analysis, but how do you make states use this? The database is here, name is here, but there was nothing to compel people to use it. The next phase was state law. I literally had a friend that was an author and she said there ought to be a law. She worked with an assemblyman and ultimately New York passed a law requiring the use of NamUs for missing persons. I took that model, went to my state representative, and we wrote a law for missing and unidentified, and Tennessee became the first state to require NamUs. If you're missing or unidentified in Tennessee in 30 days, you must go by law into NamUs, and the free services are there just because you made an entry. It's paid for, you know, by the government. So the caveat of getting the free forensic services is you must have a NamUs entry. So Tennessee got to be the first to have both sides. Even back a few years ago, the conflict between the parties, and then you had something that's very bipartisan, you know, they were happy to have something that's like, well, it's going to make it look like we can get along with each other. It was unanimously voted in in Tennessee. And I was there for the vote, and I remember uh, he hit the gavel when all those green lights went on, and he said, young man, you just passed state law in Tennessee. That was another moment in time. If I was tree, I'd have like a heavy ring at that point when he told me. It's just like you knew that you was part of something that was significant. You know, and you, you have those moments, you can't plan them. You know, it's kind of like you, you get there and you knew. So literally when another state comes along and we'd like to do the same thing, well here, we've already done the footwork for you. You just need a local advocate. Let me know if I can help you. And so far we've passed it in nine states. Todd Matthews got the Help Find the Missing Act passed in his hometown of Tennessee and used his experience with that to help others pass it in almost 10 states so far. 
Legislation is a slow process, but through determination, people like Susan Wilmer and Todd Matthews have pushed through changes with how the government is required to handle missing person cases. This act and Jennifer's Law are steps towards getting all law enforcement to input crucial information into databases that can be widely shared. I had more than a state law in Tennessee. I had a model to hand to another state and to another state. How it worked in Tennessee, I would, you know, I didn't have a family to bring forward to advocate for this. But I'm a local person, so I was able to advocate, honestly, as a constituent myself. So I waited, and when there were people like Alice Alamendrez in Texas, her father had been a long-term missing person. Through some errors, through some oversight, you know, he was unidentified for many years. And finally, through the efforts of NamUs, he was identified. And she said, what can I do? What can I do to make this not happen to somebody else? I handed her a copy of the state law. She found a representative. We both whispered in her representative's ear with what needed to happen, and Alice sat down in that chair, just like I had to, and she testified, and they passed it unanimously in Texas. So, and that's happened in any number of states. There's around 10 states that have already passed this state law. Those are some of the things that are really, really important to me because there's there's obviously missing components in some of these cases that it's not that hard to fix it. We just have to change the way that we're looking at it. For me, as a person that's worked as a volunteer as part of the criminal justice community, it's not as important for me to solve a case as it is to prevent it from happening in the first place. If I can stop it, we're better off as a human. I take more pride in the cases that maybe we prevented than the ones that we've actually resolved. But the ones I don't know about, I hope are numerous. I hope that we've done things that have prevented this from happening, things that we'll never know on this earth. You know, I hope that we've done things. I see a lot of cyber sleuths, what they want to do is, we want to make the next ID. I felt it was more important to develop the tools to keep it from happening in the first place. So I focused my life since 1998 forward on let's never let this happen again. Let's do everything we can to not need a cyber sleuth. If we could be eliminated because we had no cases, wouldn't that be a wonderful world to not need us? So far this season, we've covered Adam Katz and Jennifer Wilmer. But the list of murdered and missing deadheads does not stop with them. On Todd's website, the first missing Grateful Dead fan listed is Bridget Pendle Williams, who last made contact with her family in December of 1996. I left home when I was 16. I had some family kerfuffles and I got tossed out of the house. So I was sleeping in a field for a little while. I put myself through college and slept in a car. So I had a feeling what it was like not to have a steady roof. Family and I all worked things out later. Now we're all great friends, but it was a rough period. This is Kevin Fagan, longtime journalist with the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, my mom was a Navy journalist and my dad was an English teacher and a tech writer. And so I grew up with every wall in the house lined with books and uh, being filled with the wonder of writing. My mom in particular said that journalism was the best thing you could do. So when I was a freshman in high school, I got on the high school paper and I thought, oh man, this is exactly what I do. Get a notebook in your hand, you can go talk to anyone. I was kind of shy. 
they'll tell you stuff and then you get to go write. And writing was just as fun as eating candy for me. I, I still love it. It's, it's just a kick in the pants. And so I've been a reporter and an editor for decades because you get to go out in the world, be in it, ask people stuff, meet amazing people, and then write about it. It's just, it's just fun. And you get to make a difference, especially when you write about homelessness, you can make a difference. And the reporting I've done over the years has done that, which has made me very happy. It's made some policy changes and created some programs. That's what you want to do. You want to leave a better footprint in the world than when you when you found it. I just made this out of uh, corduroy pants from Freebox in People's Park. It's a seven-foot teepee and uh, all hand-stitched. I'm sort of homeless and I'm really landless. I got no place to put my teepee in Berkeley. I'd like to do it up in the hills in Tilden or in the marina. But uh, against the law. And then after college, I uh, took a guitar and I backpacked, you know, all over Europe and Australia and New Zealand, and I played bars and clubs. And when you're traveling as a street musician, I was hitchhiking a lot. And, you know, a lot of times you're sleeping around trees and side of the road because the ride doesn't come. And it gives you a taste of what it's like again. So I've had some real homelessness, some chosen homelessness. Uh, it, gave me, it gave me a little bit more of a feel for what I was looking at and being in when I reported homelessness. It's not like I'm some anthropologist going in and looking at these strange creatures called homeless people. No, I can really feel what they're going through. My heart breaks every day when I talk to these folks. You, you're desperate when you're living outside. No one really wants to live outside. You know, unless you're a kid. Deadheads, sure, you know, it's, it's like a chosen homelessness for a lot of folks. Because you're, you know, bouncing around, being a hippie, a bohemian, whatever you want to call it. But you're eventually going to go back to your real life. Young people in particular, like me, you know, when I was doing the street thing, street musician thing. It's exciting and it's strange, but eventually you're going to go back and get a job and have a house, have a roof. That's a different kind of different kind of homelessness. Really homeless because you got no choice. That's a, a crisis, and no one really wants that. You know, one of the the, the sayings in journalism is you're you're there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You want to make the world a better place. You want to be a voice for the voiceless. And you're not much more voiceless than when you're homeless. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. 
June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. For most people, I think being homeless is very traumatic. To not have that security and just to be worrying about your day-to-day survival, mental health and substance use can be part of it, but I think often People focus on that and kind of forget all these other factors that lead to homelessness. My name is Elizabeth Bowen. I'm an associate professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Sometimes mental health issues and substance use are more of an effect of homelessness rather than a cause of it. There's a lot of trauma in that. A lot of people encounter different kinds of violence and assault while being homeless. People may have post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, not as a cause of homelessness, but after being homeless. Or people may turn to substances as part of a coping mechanism to deal with this incredibly stressful and traumatic living situation. So to characterize mental health issues or substance use issues as a singular cause of homelessness, I think is often not totally accurate and somewhat exaggerated. Homelessness in some places is highly criminalized. So people may actually be arrested for things like vagrancy or sleeping in a place where you're not allowed to sleep. There's all kinds of different statutes and laws that sometimes are used against homeless people to criminalize homelessness, which of course doesn't really do anything to address the root causes of homelessness. Because of that, I would overall have to characterize interactions between law enforcement and people experiencing homelessness as pretty negative and sometimes I think abusive and traumatic. After all these years of being a journalist, I've covered government features, I've traveled overseas for the paper, been in wartime situations. It's, uh, you just come to have an understanding that this, that America is set up to kind of create an underclass, to maintain an underclass. Uh, the backstops we used to have up until the 80s, which is now a long time ago, were largely eliminated and have only been brought back piecemeal and not nearly enough. Affordable housing, welfare, you know, it's really a dog-eat-dog 
survival of the fittest system at its core. It, it's a system driven by the needs of greed. And that just pisses me off. It's so unfair to create uh, enough awareness to, to counteract that is journalism. So we have a responsibility to, to write about people who, who are being crushed and to, to make people aware of it so that you appeal to some sense of humanity that you want to do something about it. If you're either a leader, you know, elected person all the way up to the White House or just Joe Schmo living in a, you know, living somewhere who goes to the voting booth. It's, it's just not right. It's not cool. It's not just or fair or anything. It's a system that should be changed. I think a lot of people who are not homeless, if they think about homelessness or homeless people at all, it's often just with a feeling of disgust. You know, I have nothing in common with those people, or I don't want to see that in my neighborhood, or I'm afraid of those people. I do think people that are homeless are largely treated as outcasts within our society. People that are homeless, often among that population, we see groups that are already marginalized in different ways being overrepresented. People with disabilities are more likely to be homeless. People of color are more likely to be homeless. People that have been incarcerated are more likely to be homeless. You can see that different marginalized identities can kind of compound each other and add to that sense of stigma and further marginalization once someone becomes homeless. I do think the biggest thing is major federal policy change. And that, of course, is not easy and often, you know, takes a lot of advocacy and a lot of grassroots efforts and a lot of time. But I do think if we are truly going to end homelessness, we do need to change some of our policies around it. The biggest thing, I think, would be making housing assistance and entitlement benefit. So fund housing programs so that anyone who qualifies for it and needs assistance would get that assistance and get it quickly. We also need to make sure that there's a range of different kinds of housing assistance. Not everyone needs the same thing. So for some people, simply some type of subsidy to help with the cost of housing, that might be all that's needed to prevent homelessness. And maybe not even needed forever, but for a limited amount of time. Other people are gonna need that assistance for a longer amount of time because of what their situation is. In 2004, Kevin was contacted by Bridget's sister, Jackie. She wanted to fly to San Francisco to attempt to find her sister, Bridget. He titled the piece, Shame of the City. Robert Rosenthal was um, the managing editor at the time. He picked that title because it was Lincoln Jeffries was this great writer about the poor in the early 1900s. And he wrote something called Shame of the City. It's a shame. The cities should be ashamed that they have people living like this. God knows in San Francisco, there are heaps of people trying really hard to, to fix it, to address it. And they do have programs that do a lot of good. It's just not enough. And it's, it's like digging out a, a beach with a kitty shovel and pail. The, the problem really is national. It's statewide and it's national. Uh, if we didn't have programs that perpetuated poverty, uh, we wouldn't have homelessness to this degree. Just haven't figured it out since 
since we decimated everything in the 80s. I remember knocking on the door of the really bottom-end residential hotel that Bridget had stayed at. The Mission District, just a sketch up from Mission Street, which is the main street in that district. And it was, I mean, she was really down and out. And it was the kind of place you, you filter down to when you, you know, hit near the bottom. I get a lot of calls like this. Jackie really put her shoulder into it for, God, I forget how many days, it was a while. And then she went back home and we kept touch for a while and then gradually lost touch. Uh, but she seemed to be willing to go the extra yard because when you know that your loved one is lost in drugs, lost in the street, lost in prostitution, that's a real hill to climb if you're gonna help them. I've seen some people pull out. There's one gal named Rita Grant I wrote about who was sleeping on Homeless Island, this island in the Shame of the City series. And her family came out and found her after they read about her in my story and took her home and she's thriving today. There's a guy a couple of years ago, his brother read about him in one of my stories and flew out here from Ohio. Uh, we found Tyson and he took him back and it was a lovely, wonderful reunion story, but then Tyson relapsed, came back here and, and died of an overdose. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's it's just wonderful when it works. I had really hoped that Jackie was gonna be able to find Bridget. Anyone who has somebody who just goes missing, they never wanna give up. People who are murdered, you at least do have the closure. You might not know who did it, but when they just disappear. Oh, it's horrible. Oh. Uh, Do you need to go? Yeah, can we pause this just for a second? No problem. Thanks. Okay. Okay, since you're a deadhead, this is eerie and karmic. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of Rita, the woman I was just talking about who got uh, rescued and is living her beautiful self again. I've been trying to get a hold of her for a few days. She called right when I mentioned her. She called just now. It's a, it a setting, as I'm going to go out and visit her in uh, about a month and a half. Uh, so I think your podcast had a uh, karmic effect of some kind. So thank you. <laughs> uh, you get calls from relatives who say, I want to find my sister, brother, dad, whoever. And uh, this was one of those calls back you know, in the early, mid-2000s. And Jackie called and said that I'd like to find my sister and uh, I'm going to fly out there and I'll, I'll be walking around. And so Brant, I talked it over with Brant and we said, well, hell yeah, let's walk around. You know, because we'd slept all over the city. We knew all the camps and the, the, the stomping grounds. So we asked around to the outreach workers we knew and then we went with Jackie all over the place. She was clearly not a drug addict. Jackie. She was a real upstanding kind of gal. And she shows up and she's got these flyers. We just walked around with her asking questions. Have you seen Bridget? And I think we did a 
a data search to find out where her last residences were. I think we pulled police records. We did bang on the on a couple of doors, particularly that one in Mission Street. I forget the name of the hotel. And asked if people remembered her and people had hazy memories. Oh yeah, she was here, but she's not here anymore. And then there were rumors of of a woman who looked like her down on Market Street who she was crying and sleeping. They called her the crier, sleeping out in the, uh, near one of the traffic dividers. Yeah, it's an interesting place. It's uh, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. Historically, it was, you know, in the, in the early to the mid 1900s, it was where if you were single, back then, you could go find a residential hotel that was respectable. You'd live with a bunch of others, mostly single people, until you got married and moved out and got your own place. That was kind of the societal paradigm at the time. Uh, and a lot of working people lived there. And then over the years, it became, as society changed and people didn't live in residential hotels anymore, people moved more to the suburbs, it really decayed and it became where a lot of poor folks went. It's one of the few places in the city where you can live if you don't have a whole lot of money. But subsequently, you've got a lot of homeless people and drug dealing and drug addiction on the streets. Someone like Bridget, who you know had been a model, kind of stands out. Even after you've been decayed by the street life, you're still gonna stand out a bit. Reporting on homeless folks, I'm looking for homeless folks. It's really time intensive because you got to walk around. You're checking a hundred places. One might be useful. You're waiting hours and hours to find people or meet people. They never show up. It's not, it's the opposite of easy. I'll tell you, that's what this was. This one took, we took a few weeks digging into this one. Yeah, here I remember we went to the, uh, went to Glide Memorial Church and there were so many missing people. God, so many missing homeless people. Yeah, and here we have uh, Jackie looking at all the posters and being really moved by seeing so many others like her sister. When there are stones in your pathway and a pack of hellhounds on your trail, it can be tough to do the thing you need to do to survive. Move forward, keep running, keep on trucking, as it were. You do it anyway because the alternative to not moving forward, well, you have some idea what the alternative is, but you fear it is even worse than you could ever imagine. It's more painful even than the memories of those you're leaving behind, those you may not even see again. But you hear a voice calling, and they're coming after you, and you have to move. So you leave Reno late one night. You can't sleep, but it's fine because you need to keep going. You set out running and you run until you're winded. Your chest feels like it'll explode and you pause for a brief moment to catch your breath. Your thighs burn like hell and you keep going. You're powered solely by adrenaline. Well, that and also Rad's vitamin C and cocaine. And you cross over into Utah, hide out in a cave somewhere up in the hills. Later you pass by the levee and you see him there waiting for you, the devil himself. He doesn't look like he looks in children's books. He wears dirty blue jeans and a wide brimmed hat. He offers you 20 bucks, and he knows you're desperate. And you got nothing, not a red cent to your name. So you take it. You're gonna need it. 
if you're going to make it to California alive. But you know it comes with a catch. The devil just doesn't go around casually handing out $20 bills, not expecting something in return. It's a loan, and someday he'll want it back, with interest. The devil always wants to take it all away. And that's a problem for another day. And when you reach your destination, the promised land, out there where the western horizon tumbles into the Pacific, you pray that you don't find yourself in limbo, but you probably will. There's nowhere left to run to. The hounds have long lost their scent. You're impatiently waiting for the devil to collect on that debt, but you're unsure what that'll mean exactly because the money's all gone. The deals have all gone down. So you wait and you walk up and down Haight Street, and then it's over to 16th, across to the mission. San Francisco has lost its mythical charm. It's no longer the golden city of the 1960s. The sunny side of the street is dark. There are no peaceniks handing out free love and free food with rose-colored glasses. Now it's derelicts, pimps, and prostitutes, burnouts making bedrooms out of a park bench, and junkies looking for a trap door in a dead end. Some people just walk up and down the city streets for months, even years, running, walking, moving. It's all they know. They're stuck in that loop, like the emaciated woman who weeps as she slowly moves from one intersection to the next. They call her the crier. No one knows what she's crying about, but everyone knows it'll never end. Others are figures that have long since dissolved into the collective folklore of the community at large. Like Charles Altman, always trucking in style along the avenue. Some knew him as Charlie Brown, and some as the Wandering Holy Man, but others still once knew him by a more far-out name, Cosmic Charlie. Robert Hunter, the lyricist who co-wrote some of the Grateful Dead's most indelible songs with Jerry Garcia, went on record to deny that the Dead's 1969 song, Cosmic Charlie, was about that particular denizen of the San Francisco scene. The rest of the band, in all honesty, they didn't talk about that song all that much, if at all. In fact, they stopped performing it at their shows, not even two years after its debut. Cosmic Charlie was one of those tunes that was destined to work best in the studio and if it well as the closing track of the band's third studio album, Lox Moxoa. It was too complex to play live. Between the vocal harmonies and the tempo changes, Cosmic Charlie was just too far out. Jerry especially couldn't nail the double duty of his vocal and instrumental parts. It was like rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time. So Cosmic Charlie fell by the wayside. The Dead dropped the song from their set in 1971. They didn't play it again until 1976 when they toured following their self-imposed hiatus. Even slightly reworked though, the song was too complex, too difficult. Before the year was up, once again, Cosmic Charlie was relegated to the vault. Over the years, the song's status as a neglected masterpiece grew. Fans wondered, would the dead ever play it again? And they resurrected another little herd gem, St. Stephen, in 1983, after it too had gone MIA from the set list. Eventually, the fans got tired of wondering if Cosmic Charlie would follow suit. They took matters into their own hands. In 1984, Deadheads launched a grassroots initiative called the Cosmic Charlie Campaign. They handed out stickers and handbills in the parking lots outside of where the dead were playing, and they collected signatures for a petition to get Cosmic Charlie back in circulation, and then mailed those signatures to the Grateful Dead. 
They hoped that their voices would be heard and that an obscure jam would emerge from the shadows, but no dice. True, the dead were nothing without their fan base, but listen, man, they weren't going to play the fucking song ever again. Any campaign to convince them otherwise was a lost cause. And believe me, Jerry didn't lose sleep over any of this. Jerry did, however, have a better idea. Ten years later, in February of 1994, at a show at the Oakland Coliseum, the unthinkable happened. The dead were deep into their second set, and they were wrapping up a run through the other one with Jerry, Bob Weir, and Phil Lesh all noodling on their strings in a collective fadeaway. And right as that tune settled down, Jerry began to play a familiar melody on his guitar. They moved slowly. One by one, the other members of the band fell in line with their own parts. One by one, fans in the crowd recognized what they were hearing. And they clapped and they hollered, and their hoarse throats shouted with joy and disbelief. Was it happening? Fuck, it was happening. The band was playing Cosmic Charlie for the first time in what, 20-something years? It was an incredible moment, a historical moment. The entire crowd surged with positivity. This went on for all of 41 seconds, and suddenly, Jerry shifted gears and began to play the intro to Warfrat. Moans and cries of shock and disappointment echoed out from across the sea of fans, and they booed and they heckled. They dubbed it the worst show ever. They had been played. But Cosmic Charlie had not, and it never would again. The legacy of the song became double-edged. On the one hand, it represented hope, patience, diamonds hiding in the rough. Didn't matter if it was an objectively great song or not. It had weight because it was so elusive. And those in the know used it as a way to work in a deep pull reference to other deadheads. Case in point is a Grateful Dead cover band called Cosmic Charlie. One of something like 600 working bands that performed the music of the dead in the United States. But on the other hand, the song Cosmic Charlie has become something else. It's a casualty. Something that didn't work. Something that the band no longer wanted no matter how much the people begged for it. And around the time that the dead teased an audience with a snippet of the song in the mid-90s, Cosmic Charlie was busy taking on another meaning. It no longer brought to mind Charles Altman, the wandering holy man, if it ever brought him to mind in the first place. Now there was another guy running around to hate calling himself Cosmic Charlie. New ones coming as the old ones go. Some said he was a drifter. Others said he was a runner that he had made his way out west like so many others by moving forward and surviving, waiting around for the devil to collect. In the meantime, he met a lot of people, other drifters, other runners. They came and went. One in particular, she disappeared, long gone. Her family was looking for her, and the cops too. But they were losing hope, suspecting foul play. They had questions for a guy like Cosmic Charlie. They just hoped the devil hadn't gotten to him first. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. 
and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. This show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA. Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group. Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.